Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four movies to review for you. Three of them are brand new, or they came out this past week, the week of August 23rd to 27th. 2021, and one of them came out a couple of weeks ago, but I just got around to reviewing it right now. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is one that is brand new, having been released on Hulu on August 27th, 2021, and that movie is Vacation Friends. This is a movie I came into having relatively low expectations because comedies have disappointed me before, but this one I found particularly hilarious. The movie stars uh, Lil Rel Howery, who's the main character, but he might be overshadowed by his co-star, who is a bigger star than he is and more of a household name, but still Lil Rel Howery should get credit for being the lead in this movie, but his co-star in the film is none other than John Cena, and this is not John Cena's first comedy, but this is probably the first comedy where John Cena has actually been funny. He was actually in another movie with Ike Barinholtz and Leslie Mann, which was called Blockers. And he had moments where he was funny, but he was mainly supposed to be the straight man. In this movie, John Cena is actually the um, source of comic relief. And lo and behold, he, as well as his girlfriend in the movie is played by Meredith Hagner are very funny. So let me just give you a little bit of a synopsis of Vacation Friends. It is directed by Clay Tarver, and Clay Tarver is a musician. He's actually a Harvard graduate. He graduated from that university in 1988, and he formed a couple of um, bands in the Boston area, actually. Boston, the greatest city in the world. I'll always consider it the greatest city. Uh, One of his first bands was Bullet La Volta, which he started in the late 1980s. Then he jumped around from band band to band like Tang and Chavez. But he started a movie career actually a little while later. Uh, He wrote uh, films like Joyride, which was a film that was um, directed by J.J. Abrams. And he's done other projects with Mike Judge too. But I believe that... um, Vacation Friends is the first movie that he directed. So what is Vacation Friends about? It is about a couple, not a married couple, but they're dating and they're very serious. Their names are Marcus and Emily. Marcus is a construction worker who's played by Lil Rel Howery, and Emily is his girlfriend and later on will be his fiance. And she's played by Yvonne Orgy. And Yvonne Orgy is... A woman with an unfortunate last name, particularly for a mainstream actress, but she is uh, very pretty, and she's also done uh, several movies and TV shows in supporting roles. Among the TV shows she's done have been uh, Insecure with Issa Rae, and she's also been on a couple of episodes of Jane the Virgin. She's not particularly well-known, but she's very good in this, and she and Lil Rel Howery have amazing chemistry together. So they go to a Mexican resort, presumably in Cancun, although it's never uh, specified, but Marcus is intending to propose to Emily, but his romantic plan is ruined when the room that they booked is flooded by a leaking jacuzzi from the presidential suite above their room. So while trying to book another room, they befriend actually two people who are wild and carefree and also have a questionable source of money. There's Ron, who's played by John Cena, and his serious girlfriend, Kyla, who's played by Meredith Hagner. So Lil Rel Howery and John Cena need next to no introduction, but Meredith Hagner is a 34-year-old actress who has been in a number of movies and TV shows in uh, supporting roles, and almost too many to name right now. But anyway, the two of them actually have the presidential suite and invite Marcus and Emily to stay with them. So they stay in Mexico for a week in 
uh, perceived paradise. And they also engage in a lot of wild parties. But when they part ways in Mexico, they actually meet up again without really meaning to meet up. And it is then when Marcus and Emily are beginning to plan their wedding. Marcus is trying to get in good with Emily's uh, uptight, hard-to-please father. And then um, Ron and Kyla literally crash the wedding. And by crash, what I mean is they make an, an appearance at the wedding literally by crashing their car into the reception. So, and then hilarity ensues. And sometimes I use hilarity ensues with some sarcasm, but in this case, this movie, and I'm not sure what it is about the film, but it is genuinely funny. I did not expect John Cena to be as hilarious as he was in this film, but there are a bunch of times where I got a chuckle from him. And Lil Rel Howery, I think for probably the first time, is the straight man in this film. But even straight men have funny lines. Take George Burns, for instance. George Burns was usually the straight man, especially alongside Gracie Allen. But he always had some really good Mark Twain-level zingers. And I do think that Lil Rel Howery certainly had his moment to shine comedically. I also really liked all the supporting performances in this film. And I do think that this is a movie that will put... Yvonne Orgy and Meredith Hagner, I, I hope that's how you pronounce her last name, on the map, I think in terms of their acting ability, because they certainly look like they have earned their status as at, at least strong supporting roles in this film particularly, and I hope to see them in future things as well. I was really surprised by this film because as I've noted from various comedies, they could be either hit or miss. And I do think the trajectory of the wedding in this film is a bit formulaic, just a bit though. Cause there's always that moment where there's a falling out between certain people and the likelihood of the wedding being off is apparently great unless you have seen as many wedding movies as I have, but it doesn't fall victim to other tired, uh, formulaic wedding cliches, uh, wedding movie cliches, I should say, like for example, the bride is a bitch that doesn't happen in, in this film, uh, at all. And I was very pleasantly surprised by that. I, there were times where I kind of knew where this story was going, but I think what it lacked in predictability, it certainly made up for in some great performances, particularly by the four main cast members of this film. So vacation friends is a movie that's shot beautifully, especially since it was filmed in Mexico and also in Atlanta, Georgia, because that's where the uh, wedding ceremony and reception takes place in this film. But I was very pleasantly surprised by it. And Vacation Friends gets my rating of a knockout. It is brilliantly written, very well acted by the likes of John Cena and Lil Rel Howery, most especially. And Yvonne Orji and Meredith Hagner also gave their characters a lot of sympathy as well as a lot of concrete uh, acting ability. So Vacation Friends is definitely worth recommending. There are some movies that are shot beautifully in Perceived Paradise where it seems a little less like the director wanted to make a good movie and more like they wanted to write the movie to be on vacation. It doesn't. I don't get that impression with Vacation Friends at all, and it's certainly worth a look. It may hurt a little bit to watch this film as summer is commencing right now, but... Then again, 2021 has been a hard year, not as bad as 2020, but hopefully you can watch this no matter what type, kind, what <laughs> um, time of year it is, and you will enjoy it. I know I certainly did, and I got a lot of big laughs.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a brand new film that is a Netflix original. It premiered on Netflix on August 27th, 2021, and the movie is He's All That. If that sounds very familiar to the title, She's All That, that is because it is purposefully that way. It's reportedly an updated remake of the 1999 film She's All That, but upon watching it, it seemed, I think, even more formulaic than She's All That. And I liked She's All That. If I were to rate it now, I'd probably give it a checkout. I liked it because of its charming performances by the likes of Rachel Lee Cook, Freddie Prinze Jr., Gabrielle Union, mm, Gabrielle Union, <laughs> just saying, uh, Matthew Lillard, Paul Walker, a lot of big stars in it. Anna Paquin too, Anna Paquin after she won her Academy Award, but she's all that is, is of course a very unrealistic and polished teen comedy, but I, I think it resonates today because it has its charm. No one asked for an updated remake or a gender swapped remake, but here it is a movie I did not expect to like, and I was not particularly disappointed when I didn't like it. It's directed by Mark Waters, who is a 57 year old director. He's directed uh, such films before this as uh, the house of yes. Actually, that was an independent comedy in 1997 that starred Parker Posey. He also directed the 2003 version of Freaky Friday starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan back when Lindsay Lohan was a credible actress. He also, and this really hurts, he directed Mean Girls and Mean Girls was a much better comedy than He's All That. And since then, he's directed a number of relatively well-known uh, mainstream films such as just Like Heaven, The Spiderwick Chronicles, Ghost of Girlfriends Past, Mr. Popper, M Mr. Popper's Penguins, Vampire Academy, Bad Santa 2, and this is his first film since Magic Camp. And Magic Camp is a Disney Plus original film starring Adam, Adam Devine, excuse me, uh, which I have not actually seen, but maybe I'll check it out. But... It's really unfortunate that a director as talented as Mark Waters, particularly after he made Mean Girls, which resonates today as a very original teen comedy, would do something as formulaic as that. But I guess in the world of movies, a gig is a gig. So this movie, as I said, is a gender-swapped remake of the 1999 film She's All That. To the movie's credit, it doesn't follow the plot of She's All That to a T. There are certain plot twists in She's All That, which in and of itself is loosely based on My Fair Lady, which I think this movie did pretty well to avoid. But here's the thing. This is a movie about a teenage girl who sets out to give a nebbish classmate the ultimate high school makeover. So she's basically just like the uh, She's All That movie from 1999 and like My Fair Lady. A, a popular student is making a bet with another con more conceited popular student to turn an unpopular student popular. So the teenage girl in this movie is uh, named Paget Sawyer. And that's actually a very good uh, name for a girl, Paget, And she's played by Allison Ray, who is very pretty, but could use some work on her acting. And the seemingly unpopular kid in this movie is named Cameron Queller, and he's played by a talented young actor named Tanner Buchanan. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that always kind of got me about the movie She's All That was that Rachel Lee Cook, who's supposedly the unpopular girl and not considered as pretty as everyone else is in reality gorgeous. Even with glasses on in that movie, I thought she was cute. However, that's not nearly as egregious as Tanner Buchanan in this movie, whose only real flaw as a high school student in this um, 
California high school, presumably in Los Angeles or in the greater Los Angeles area, is that he has long hair and he wears flannel. If you were to time warp this kid back to 1994, he would be the most popular kid in school. And I'm thinking, why didn't a movie like this take a risk? Why didn't they get a kid who looks like, for example, Bobby Moynihan and make him a popular uh, student? That would have been a challenge. And yeah, I do realize I insulted Bobby Moynihan, but let's be honest, he's not anybody who you'd find on the cover of um, uh, a woman's magazine, for instance, like Cosmopolitan, for example. And, and also, the, Cameron has a best friend who's also a misfit, whose name is Nisha, who's played by Annie Jacob, who, by the way, she, she's not concealed with glasses or anything. She is a beautiful actress. So you have these people who are falling into this really tired teen movie cliche of kids who are exceptionally good-looking who are pretending to be something that they're not on screen and nobody who's watching this film is buying it. But here's another thing that gets me about he's all that. This girl, Paget Sawyer, who I said earlier was played by Addison Ray, is very much uh, into being a social media influencer. In other words, even though her mother, Anna Sawyer, who's played by Rachel Lee Cook, uh, is a nurse and they're living paycheck to paycheck. She is actually making a good living as a, as an influencer, which immediately reminded me of that girl, Olivia Ray, who's the daughter of Lori Laughlin, who made, um, news by her parents bribing college admissions people to get her into USC but I saw some of her social media videos, like the ones she put on Instagram, on the news, and I hated her. I, I didn't hate her just because of the college admission scandal. That wasn't entirely her fault. But I couldn't buy why literally hundreds of thousands of people would follow these other people who are just so jaded and so uh, materialistic. And maybe that's one of my issues with social media. But again, I know this is the way of the world right now. And I'm beginning to question why social media is even a necessary evil. But in any event, I guess the moral of the story that the hero, Paget Sawyer, comes to in the end is that social media is just an illusion which you could probably hear about on news reports. It's not going to be a predictable. Um, I mean, it's not going to be an unpredictable moral to anyone who's watching this film, especially teenagers. We all know that, or at least we should know that social media is an illusion. And it, it, I don't want to get into the really sad statistics about teenagers nowadays, having low self-esteem, and that correlating to the rise in popularity or the consistent popularity of social media. What I'm saying is this movie does not really do anything new with the social media moral. As a matter of fact, as much as I hated high school and as much as I was so happy to get out of there, I would imagine if I were 16 or 17 and I went to high school now, I would probably hate it even more than I did in the 90s and early aughts because it seems to be a lot more of a fierce social media jungle out there. And I think there was a more brilliant way to parody or satire uh, that trend than to just make a remake of She's All That. So... As I said, even even taking into account that this movie is an acknowledged loose remake of She's All That, which was actually written by R. Um, Lee Fleming Jr., who, interestingly enough, did not write the original She's All That. Oh, I'm sorry. Scratch that. He did write the original She's All That. He also wrote 
another film that came out two years later called Get Over It, which was supposed to be his um, his passion project. He actually wrote Get Over It, the forgettable film with Kirsten Dunst, Colin Hanks, Cisco, Ben Foster, and, and several other notable actors, I, I might add. He wrote Get Over It before She's All That. But what was interesting was when they finally came out with Get Over It in 2001, Get Over It was far more cliched than She's All That. So I do credit Arlie Fleming Jr. for not following the the pattern of the original She's All That. Or maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was the producers who edited the, the story. While I give it that, I do have to say that the whole message behind this about the social media and how teenagers are obsessed with it while at the same time making money on it, I think that could have made a more brilliant film and a more satirical film than just a remake of She's All That. So He Is All That gets my rating of a flunk out. And the reason for that is because the acting by most people involved here wasn't all that great. I did like the appearances of Rachel Lee Cook and Matthew Lillard, who do not actually play the characters that they did in the original She's All That. That was a missed opportunity because both those actors are immensely talented. I also took issue with Courtney Kardashian in this film playing a social media influencer, not as much as... Uh, I, which is not too much of a stretch from reality, but my biggest problem with Courtney Kardashian in this film is she plays a character named Jessica Miles Torres. And Torres is a Latin name, or or should I, should I say a Spanish name, whereas Courtney Kardashian is not at all Spanish. Her father, um, Robert Kardashian, was Lebanese. And her mother is uh, a mixture of Dutch, English, Irish, and uh, Swedish ancestry. So she is not Latina at all. And there are other actors in this film who are of color. For instance, uh, Madison Pettis, who plays Paget Sawyer's conceited best friend Alden, is biracial. She has a black parent and a white parent. Annie Jacob you wouldn't know this from her name, is Indian, clearly. And she also has a friend named Quinn, who's played by Myra Molly, Malloy, excuse me, who is Filipina or Asian of, of some kind. I, I want to say Filipina, but either way, she is of color. So I didn't understand why somebody who is not Latina would play someone with a Latina last name. That's never explained, and it seems to undercut some of the welcome racial diversity in this film. So he's all that is a remake. Nobody asked for, I think it could have been a, a legitimate sequel to she's all that. And it would have maintained a lot of its originality. I don't entirely blame director Mark waters or writer Arlie Fleming jr. For making this movie after all, they were not the only hands involved in making this. My guess is that producers had their hand in this and they messed this movie up. It could have been more original. It didn't have to be a remake for it to be sharp and satirical. But unfortunately, we got another formulaic film, even more formulaic than She's All That. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Loud House Movie. This is a film that debuted on Netflix and is a Netflix original on August 20th, 2021. I just didn't have time to review it last week. Now, interestingly enough, The Loud House is a show that airs on Nickelodeon, and The Loud House Movie 
also known as the Loud House on IMDb, is a Nickelodeon Films production. So, obviously on Netflix it has a wider audience, but this movie could have debuted as a Paramount Plus original. After all, Nickelodeon is owned by Viacom, which also owns Paramount, and all of the Viacom properties on Nickelodeon, MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, uh, are on Paramount+. Plus. So I'm very curious why the Loud House movie was not on Paramount+, Plus and was on Netflix instead. Probably because of what I said, it is a Netflix original. So the Loud House is a cartoon that was created by Chris Savino exclusively for Nickelodeon. It debuted in 2016 and is still on the air to this day. Uh, It's been on for uh, six seasons, not that kids are counting that, but this is kind of interesting because I have never, I, I haven't watched Nickelodeon for decades. I think the last time I watched it, I was maybe 15 or 16. I'd occasionally tune into it when there was absolutely nothing on TV, but I wasn't familiar with the Loud House when going into this movie at all. And I do think that actually is an asset because movies, especially those that are based on TV shows, and even more especially based on TV shows that are still in production and haven't left the airwaves yet, have to stand on their own as movies. People who have not watched the show really have to identify with the characters without being familiar with them for literally hours beforehand. And I do think that the Loud House movie succeeds in familiarizing people who are not familiar with the Loud House into the characters here. So, the Loud House is an animated movie, as I implied from it being on Nickelodeon. Now, I do realize that there are Nickelodeon shows that are live action, but The Loud House is indeed animated. And it is about a family of 11 kids, eight girls, one boy. And with his parents and all 10 sisters in tow, the only boy in the family, the the sole Y chromosome other than his father, Lincoln Loud, heads to Scotland and learns that royalty runs in the family in this global musical journey. So we're introduced to the family. And I actually do think it's pretty brilliant how they um, give exposition in the first five minutes of the movie showing how the two loud parents, and by the way, their last names are loud in case you aren't familiar with the show, how they met and their journey into having 11 kids, which is quite a bit for a modern family, I should say, but not impossible. My guess is they must be Catholic because I'm the son of a woman who came from a family of 14 children. Who's one out of 14. So, I'm familiar with uh, large families. I'm not familiar with growing up in one, but yeah. And I think this movie does a good job, actually in the first 10 or 15 minutes, establishing what makes all these sisters unique. And all of them have different personalities as well as different interests in which they excel. The son of the family is the one who kind of holds the family together and keeps it from getting too chaotic. But he also is not particularly recognized for having a special talent. So the reason that this family of uh, uh, 13, two parents and 11 children, go to Scotland is because that's where Lincoln realized his family is originally from. And he finds out that if he stays in Scotland, first of all, he gets to stay in a manor where Every member of the family has their own bedroom and has their own bathroom, which is huge because their house in Shaker Oats, I I think that's the name of their town, is is a house with one bathroom. Again, (laughs) this kind of describes my mom's family, but uh, moving on. So he eventually discovers that if he and his family stays in Scotland, not only will they have a spacious household, but he will also have, um, (laughs) he will also be crowned the Duke of this certain 
small town in Scotland. And as it turns out, while the groundskeeper Angus is perfectly okay with this, the caretaker of the manor is not and wants the crown for herself. And she actually has a diamond that can control a dragon that lives in this small Scottish seaside town. So there's a lot of wackiness that ensues in the Loud House. I do think it gets a bit predictable in terms of its story where these this large family wants to stay in Scotland, but they're also leaving their life back in America behind them. And they also have to tell their their friends and their significant others that they're not going to be coming back. And you know eventually they're going to have a change of heart about that. And you also know that the the headmistress or the the caretaker of this manor is going to try to get her way and also turn the family against each other. Those are the, some of the the plot of uh, the plot elements that I saw coming. And maybe I broke my rule on words on film about no spoilers, but I did like the animation in this film. I liked actually the fact that within a very short period of time, you knew the personalities of all the characters in the film, uh, particularly the main characters of the loud family without knowing each and every one of them for too long. So, you know, their personalities, even if you don't necessarily know their names. And I really liked that. And I was taken back by the animation as well as the lunacy and the wackiness that I saw in this film. And for an animated movie that's based on a TV show, this one is pretty good. It's probably up there in terms of the timing of its jokes, as well as its appealing story to that of the first SpongeBob movie, and maybe even the third as well. I don't think the Loud House is as popular a show as SpongeBob, but then again, SpongeBob has been on for 22 years, so the Loud House has a lot of catching up to do in that regard. But I do think that the movie stands well on its own as a film, even for people like me who haven't necessarily seen the TV show. As a matter of fact, I have not seen a single episode of the show. So as this movie started, I got what the characters were, what a lot of their motivations were. And I liked it. I thought it was very creative. I thought it was very funny. And the loud house movie gets my rating of a knockout. I think it is a movie that as much of a cliche as this is, I do think the whole family will enjoy kids will love it for it's appealing children characters as well as for its colorful animation. And I think adults will get some of the humor in this movie as well. And they won't get uh, turned off by it. It's not exactly a film that's made just for kids. And I think that parents will certainly appreciate it. And Nickelodeon is particularly when it comes to some of the films they've made, like the SpongeBob SquarePants movie and the Rugrats movie. Nickelodeon is good at making family fair that's not just sugar-coated and like dangling keys. So the Loud House movie, I certainly recommend. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a brand new Netflix documentary that is called Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed. 
And Bob Ross, as I mentioned last week when I was doing my What's Coming Up Next segment, is part of a PBS trifecta of personalities on PBS when the network first started in the 60s that not only did original shows, but also, especially after their death, created, I think also through clever marketing, a a devoted following. I would have said a cult following, but honestly, a devoted following. It's more than a cult. A cult suggests that it's a few people, but they're beloved personalities. So of this PBS trifecta, there's so far Julia Child, Fred Rogers, and Bob Ross. And the three of them have a lot in common. All three of them were not necessarily meant to be, uh, television personalities, or at least they weren't conventional television personalities when they first came on TV in the fifties or six, excuse me, the sixties or seventies in Bob Ross's case, it was the eighties. Cause he started his show, the joy of painting in 1983. And a lot of people are fooled by that because his haircut suggests that he's from a bygone era. The documentary Bob Ross, Happy Accidents, Betrayal, and Greed doesn't tell you everything about Bob Ross. For example, you're, you're never told why uh, he had the haircut that he did. You're also never told that he hated that haircut. And that's actually what I learned from a series of YouTube videos. You also um, are not told, for example, why he left the Air Force. Um, a, a series of YouTube videos told me this already. You're not going to get this from this documentary, but that's okay. Documentaries should tell you enough, but they shouldn't tell you too much. I was, I think uh, the sign of a great documentary is not only one that tells a great story, but also one that tells you something you didn't know about Bob Ross. And there was actually quite a few things that I did not know about Bob Ross, particularly when it comes to the title of this movie, Happy Accidents. That was one of Bob Ross's catchphrases. Whenever he made a mistake when painting a picture on his show, The Joy of Painting, he didn't regard it as a failure. He called it a happy accident. And he painted that, he, he let that happy accident blend into the picture. The betrayal and greed part, That was one part I did not know. And this movie has actually a lot of startling accusations about Bob Ross. Not about Bob Ross himself, but about some of the people who worked in the background of his show, The Joy of Painting. Particularly uh, some business associates of Bob Ross who were known as the Kowalskis. Specifically, Annette and Walt Kowalski, particularly Annette Kowalski. This movie does actually have Bob Ross's son, Steve Ross, who is still alive, making an allegation about Bob Ross that may be more than an allegation, particularly Steve Ross alleges that his father had an affair with Annette Kowalski, but the Kowalski family was both Bob Ross's uh, friends and enemies. They were friends of his because they actually put Bob Ross on various uh, painting products. And to this day, they're still releasing Bob Ross products like dolls, aprons, canvases, uh, chia pets, you name it. And that has made Bob Ross more relevant 26 years after his death, and it's going to continue to make him relevant. But apparently, Steve Ross is not happy with the Kowalskis for what they did to Bob Ross behind the scenes. And Bob Ross apparently was trying to cut ties with the Kowalskis, allegedly, up until his death. Some very interesting and intriguing um Uh, accounts in this film. I'm not saying whether they're true or whether they're lies, but it's certainly some eye-opening accusations. It's also worth noting that the director, Joshua Rofe, who directed this film, 
also noted in subtitles that there were several people, several family members of Bob Ross, as well as other associates who refused to be interviewed for this movie because they did not want to be sued by the Kowalski family. So there is a lot of juiciness to this documentary, but I also think that in addition to some of the juicy details that might have elevated the betrayal and greed part of this documentary. I also think that it told you enough about Bob Ross to give you an idea of what Bob Ross was like uh, beyond the camera and also why he had the appeal that he did up until the point that he died and why his appeal continues. And I think in a lot of ways he had the same kind of passion as well as gentle um persona to him as Julia Child and Fred Rogers. Not to mention, I did mention passion earlier, but he was very passionate about painting as much as Julia Child was passionate about cooking and Fred Rogers was passionate about teaching children. And I really loved that part. It also made me a bit nostalgic because even though I did not purposefully tune into um, the show, the joy of painting on PBS. When I was a kid, I do remember being at my grandparents' house or at daycare and having the joy of painting be on in the background. And occasionally I'd sit down and watch some of it or other times it would be on in the background when I was playing games with some friends or playing with toys. So I do vividly and fondly remember the joy of painting for the unlikely, great show that it was. And when I've seen this movie, Bob Ross, happy actions, betrayal and greed, not only am I surprised by some of the turmoil that went on behind the scenes in what was otherwise a very calming and soothing show, but I also gained a tremendous amount of respect for Bob Ross himself. And I did like some of the archive footage, like when in 1992, he made an appearance in Central Park as part of a uh, children's exhibit. And people of all different ages and all different backgrounds, as well as races, colors, and creeds, all crowded Central Park to watch Bob Ross paint. It, it, it was just a, a great testament to... Um, his passion and his personality. So I cannot vouch for any of the accusations that are made in this movie, Bob Ross, happy accident, betrayal and greed. I can tell you though, that it is a very entertaining and enlightening documentary, which gets my rating of a knockout. And I do think that this movie not only told, told a great story, but it also told me something I didn't know about Bob Ross, whether it was the juicy, details that happen on behind the scenes or even just his personality in general. And some of the things that he did without controversy, just because he was a nice guy. So I highly recommend Bob Ross, happy accidents, betrayal and greed, regardless of whether or not you grew up watching that show, uh, the joy of painting on PBS, or if you're an art enthusiast or even not either way, if you watch this documentary, you're going to get a good story. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are coming out this Labor Day weekend, primarily. That is September 3rd through 5th, 2021. But I also may touch upon movies that are coming out the week of August 30th through September 3rd, 
2021. And this weekend is going to be, as I said, the holiday weekend, Labor Day weekend, which means I get a couple of days off, which also means I get to go to the movies and see some fantastic or supposedly fantastic films that are coming out. First and foremost, the movies that are coming out in theaters. And the biggest movie to come out Labor Day weekend is a movie that is in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. This is the first MCU movie to feature an Asian character in the lead role. And Shang-Chi, or Shang-Chi, I, I don't know how it's how it, the character's name is pronounced, but this is a Marvel Comics character, but, but Shang-Chi, that's how I'm going to pronounce his name from here on out, is the master of unarmed weaponry-based kung fu. And in this movie, he is forced to confront his past after being drawn into the Ten Rings organization. Not having read the comic books, I cannot tell you what the Ten Rings organization is, but I'm very excited to see where Shang-Chi falls in the realm of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, what relation he is to such characters as, for example, Spider-Man or Black Panther. I'm very excited to see this film. Now, the the titular character is played by an Asian actor whose name is Simu Liu, who is a Chinese actor who is only 32 years old, interestingly enough. So he is an up-and-comer, maybe considered the next Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan. Aquafina is also co-starring in this film, so she is officially part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I am very excited to see this film. I cannot I I can't tell you whether a movie is going to be great or not. Maybe this movie will let me down. I don't know, but one thing I will tell you is that I will see this film and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's subject to be released in theaters for the weekend of September 3rd is We Need to Do Something. We Need to Do Something is a horror film, and it is about a woman named Melissa whose family is seeking shelter from a storm, but they become trapped after they seek or they, they find shelter for a, a, from the storm. With no sign of rescue, hours turn into days, and Melissa comes to realize that she and her girlfriend Amy might have something to do with the horrors that threaten to tear her family and the entire world apart. So I can't tell you anything more about We Need to Do Something, even though I am intensely curious about the movie, especially considering that the poster for the movie is um, a, is red, but it shows an eye, like a photograph of an eye, wide open. So I don't know if that's the victim or the spirit that is haunting the um, uh, the character Melissa. I don't know, but it looks very interesting. And if it comes to a theater near me, I will see it, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. I should also note that the uh, the actors in We Need to Do Something include Lisette Alexis, John James Cronin, Pat Healy, and Sierra McCormick. So the only actor I know of these four is Pat Healy, but I can't tell you anything more. Just Pat... Healy is a uh, legendary character actor, uh, 50 years old, or he will be 50 uh, this month. So We Need to Do Something is a a movie that I will see if if it's out in theaters, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters is one called The Gateway. This one might not be coming to a theater near me or you, but I'll look out for it. It is about a social worker who is assigned to the care of the daughter of a single mother who intervenes when the dad returns from prison and lures them into a life of crime. Sounds really interesting. The movie stars Frank Grillo, Olivia Munn, Shea Wiggum, and Taryn Manning. So these are actors I am relatively familiar with, especially Olivia Munn and uh, Taryn Manning. Taryn Manning is is an understated actress. She was, um, she's primarily known for playing Pensatucky in Orange is the New Black, but she's also been in some other movies like Hustle and Flow, in which she's been good. So I'd be interested to see this movie as it's coming out in theaters near me. I will uh, let you know what I think if I do see it on next week's show. 
Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters is one that is called Good. This one is about a man by the name of Peyton who becomes the caretaker of Gregory Devereaux, a wealthy man facing his final months. As they become close, Gregory's past sins force Peyton to decide between his dreams, whatever they might be, and a pregnancy that could squander them all. The movie stars Keith David, Justin Etheridge, Nefertari Spencer, and Callie Raquel. The only actor I know in this movie is Keith David, because Keith David is one of my voiceover heroes, alongside Morgan Freeman, James Earl Jones, Jim Cummings, and others. But Good sounds like an interesting movie. I don't know if it's coming to a theater near me, because it sounds definitely like an independent film. But if I come across it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So there are other films that are subject to be released in theaters. There are actually quite a few, but I'm reluctant to read their, um, uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to read their descriptions because I, the, the more I go down the list, the more doubtful I am that it is going to be coming out in a theater near you. So I'll just briefly tell you what's going to be premiering on Netflix on uh, September 3rd, if if I can find that. And it is not actually giving me very much detail. What happens is that in the beginning of September, Netflix and several other popular streaming platforms not only debut original movies and TV shows, but they also take put some movies on their roster and take others away. So... Unfortunately, I can't cover that for you, so I'm just going to wrap this show up right now. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke. And until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.